welcome everyone. Welcome to the matter of the heart. And we're always so glad that you take out the time and watch the show. I'm your host, Carol Olivia. Tonight's guest is uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Wolf and uh, Dr. Dora Wolf. And uh, she lives in the greater uh, um, Chicago area. And it's quite an interesting reflective topic. Do any of you, have any of you known anybody who has faced death row? Um, what type of reflection goes into death, death row with the inmate? Can there be healing? What is it like to be in a cell where you're simply seeing walls with no outside energy except to do your, your routine? We're gonna learn so much more with Dr. With Dr. Dora Wolf and we welcome her to the show. Dr. Wolf, how are you? I'm good, thank you very much. How are you? Good, thank you. Death Row is fascinating um, because uh, to me it's fascinating. It's also very difficult. But what, when it says Death Row, does that automatically mean that people are going to be executed or is there some type of um, something we don't we don't know about? Yeah, I mean, when somebody is sentenced to death row, um, certainly they can go through an appeals process. Um, so uh, that can be a long, arduous process. Um, but for the most part, people who have been sentenced there will eventually face death. Face face death. So. I know, I think you've said you have in, um, count, have you, you've counseled some inmates in death row in the Midwest area. And when is somebody is facing, you know, a sentence, um, can they be, whatever the word means to you, healed? Do they have any uh, re regrets? Do they reflect? It's kind of like going through a tunnel, you know, when we pass you know, see all the events, um, any type of insight, uh, Dr. Wolf? Sure. Well, in my experience working with um, these inmates, I think it was rather polarizing people's reactions to death row. Um, I think there were either people who were so um, caught up in appealing the process, sort of denying the crime, that uh, they spent a lot of time just denying that sort of ultimate fate. And then there were other people who did reach a point of acceptance um, and they tended to be um, inmates who were actually more compliant with things, I guess is a, the best way to put it. Um, they were very interesting to deal with from a psychological perspective because they have reached a point of acceptance Mm -hmm. in terms of what they've done and what they faced. Um, and so I think if there was any insight to be learned from uh, working with these gentlemen, it would be uh, from that category, the ones who had faced, uh, accepted sort of their fate and what had been done. So acceptance, uh, accepting, huh, so have, <laughs> how they're gonna be executed or, um, if you can just elaborate a little bit more. Sure, I think yes, that the idea of the crimes that they had committed and taking responsibility for it, uh, and the idea that they were going to be put to death, I think that there 
was a lot of self-reflection that came uh, during those times. And for those who had families, I think that was a very big time for them to want to make repairs with family members, uh, want to be able to say goodbye to family members. Um, it was for lack of peaceful time in their life where again, they gained acceptance and were um, looking to make amends with family members and uh, were primarily most concerned about what both their actions had done to their families and also what their demise and their death would mean to their families. So I'm just trying to visualize this, you know, they're in a cell, they see walls and they're not really seeing much. I guess there's no Van Gogh paintings in there. Um, how are they, what are their survival tools as far as not committing suicide? Well, I think for um, some of them, it was about reading. It was about, um, again, writing letters, sort of reflecting on their lives, educating themselves. Um, and for others who I think sort of struggled with the fate that they were facing, um, they would tend to kick up their heels and, and cause some problems. Uh, you know, one of, the, one of the ways that they could sort of get attention in death row, negative attention, uh, was they could pose a hunger strike. Um, and when they would pose a hunger strike that usually garnered media attention, um, it required all of the doctors who were in their care to monitor them closely. Uh, so it was a way of kind of throwing a temper tantrum per se, um, or again, a way of getting negative attention from the, uh, the staff at the prison. But, and so would that do anything? A hunger strike, I mean, there, um, would that do anything, uh, change anything in a positive direction or... I think that too would depend. Um, I think that when they were able to uh, to work with somebody closely to, first they were looking for that negative attention. I think once they were able to realize that again, that wasn't the best way to go about um, trying to get somebody's attention to talk to, to work on some of the things uh, that they were going through, then I think some progress could be made. Uh, but oftentimes um, there was just sort of a repetitive cycle with that type of behavior, depending on the inmate. In the, and I just thought of two words, attention and family. But um, I'm presuming that the inmates have created their own family. Yes, uh, many of them have for sure. Um, you know, death row is... Uh, part of what I covered. And then I also covered the uh, psychiatric unit of the prison. And that was an open dorm facility where these gentlemen were up and walking around. Uh, and so they had a lot more uh, socialization on that psychiatric unit. Um, and, and they did become uh, like a family. So some, another, some of the men, or, uh, and I'm presuming this was all men that you, uh, um, also had psychiatric uh, counseling at the same time, all of them, or that was part of the, um, I would say healing, I don't know what you wanna call regimen process, but that sure. was part. Sure, well, for the 150 bed psychiatric unit, they were given psychiatric care. Um, the okay. prison itself had 3,000 inmates. 
where the maximum capacity was 1800. And um, there were only two uh, psychologists to handle that entire general population. And so the amount of psychological care that occurred was obviously very few and far between. So if you were gonna get any kind of psychiatric care, uh, you were best off on the psych unit. But again, that was temporary. You would be shipped back to, your, uh, to the prison that you came from once you were deemed stable enough. And so the follow through with any kind of psychiatric care is typically very poor. Yeah, I could understand why. Um, I, I had mentioned to you that I, uh, I'm going to have a, uh, a guest who was in prison for a couple of years. And at the time that he went in, he was a known boxer. Mm. And he loved it <laughs> because he got a lot of attention. And he actually made sure that he enjoyed himself. The inmates looked up to him. So kind of not exactly relating to him, but do the inmates, once they're in there, how do they get attention? Is it because, is, is from their bullying? I mean, you know, what, the king of the whatever you want to call it? I mean, how do they get, is attention important? I think attention, uh, the, the right type of attention, you know, I think that it is a, these are typically gentlemen who have come from very dysfunctional environments. Uh, and so the idea of getting attention is typically, uh, you know, male brawn per se. And so you, you need to have a tough facade. You know, you, if, if you are somebody who nobody wants to mess with, um, then that's very positive attention. And I think for other gentlemen, whether it was because of their physicality, whether it was because of the crime that they committed, um, sex offenders, for instance, um, are one of the most maligned uh, offenders in the prison population. It's not safe for them in there. Um, oh. That is taboo within that prison population to be a sex offender. And so um, if you were found out your life is often in danger. And so those guys have a tendency to keep a very low profile. Um, either that or they would try to align with um, somebody who had this kind of rough and tough persona that nobody wanted to mess with uh, so that they were protected. Well, I'm curious also, did, um, did partners exist? I mean, uh, I'm thinking if there's a lot, you know, in not a lot, but in, in, the prisoners, did they want to align with a partner, you know, uh, anything like that? And when you mean partner? Like not a marriage partner, but a buddy that they felt the comfort of, you know, he's going to protect me. I'm going to protect him. I'm comfortable with him. Sure. Well, I think in the, uh, in the prison that I worked in, and I think you'll find this sort of generally in that population at large, there's a lot of gang members. Um, and so even though they're kind of stripped of much of their uh, identity in terms of, you know, everybody is wearing um, the same uh, outfit uh, per se, they still have tattoos and they still have their gang signs and they still just have this existence. And so you'd see them kind of pair off uh, and um, uh, or section off in that way. And I think that's where a lot of the violence also took place in the prison is you had a lot of rival gang members uh, who existed in the facility. Well, and once violence occurs, is it quote under, I hate to use the word control, but I'll use it everybody. But is it 
Is it under control? Does anybody care? Yes, I mean, for sure, because when there's any kind of violence in the prison, you're also putting um, the, the staff at the prison at risk, you know, as well. Okay. Uh, so those uh, offenders would be typically segregated. Um, and instead of being in an open dorm type of environment, they would end up in segregation as, as a punishment. Uh, for that type of behavior, the motivation to not be violent in prison, and especially in the prison environment that I worked in, and I think it's pretty common in prisons, is that you get um, time off for good time served. Um, I see. And so you would have a reduced sentence, uh, you know, if you behaved yourself. And so that was the motivation. But that was also motivation for guys to... Um, mess with other guys uh, so that they could actually have time added onto their sentence. So if you had somebody who was gonna be doing most of his life in prison, um, and there was a guy who maybe was doing a couple years, the guy who had much less to lose uh, would often egg on, um, you know, the guy who maybe was gonna be getting out relatively soon, uh, just as a way to, again, have his, ex his sentence extended. Um, and it was kind of a hierarchy and a power play in that as well. Wow. So if there are crimes committed in prison, does that get extended to their length of, you know, yes. their sentence? Mm -hmm. Do they go to, a, I mean, is there an internal court in the prison itself or? There is. Oh, there is. Mm -hmm. Ah. Wow. So much a public does not know about, you know? Um, how is the food? Do they have sushi? <laughs> um, actually, uh, <laughs> too bad, to, to be quite honest with you. That, that's part of some of the reform of the prison is that these gentlemen can work in the kitchen. Um, you know, they can learn skills. And um, uh, the staff at the prison uh, also eats the food. Uh, and so, um, you know, all in all, it wasn't, it wasn't terrible. Right. Well, you know, I'm thinking psychologically, if somebody thinks they're going to be in there just for uh, a few years compared to somebody who's long-term, with a person who was in there for a shorter term, or they think maybe they're going to get a, um, what do you call that, an appeal or something passed, would they be trying harder to, quote, behave? Typically, yes. Um, you know, when they could see the light at the end of the tunnel, yes, the motivation to follow the protocol. Um, I think that that the, again the the issue became when the other guys um, who knew that about them would egg them on, and it's one of the things we kind of work psychologically with some of them about was the idea of allowing themselves to be manipulated um, and and engage in violence only to. Uh, you know, be the ones to to pay the penalty. And so when you were trying to help an inmate see that they had a lot to lose um, by not staying regulated, it also served to motivate them to learn some of the skills because many of them didn't have the skills to actually self-regulate. And so it was the opportunity to give them some motivation to engage in treatment and want to learn some of those skills. And you as a woman walking in, did you have, you can tell, did you have any type of fear at all? Um, 
I think that it wasn't fear as much as it was curiosity. Curiosity. Um, yeah, I mean, this is something I've always been interested in. And so, you know, I was a, a young psychologist at the time. I had just earned my doctorate. This residency opportunity opened up and I had always been very curious about the, the criminal mind. Um, and again, I, I specialize in trauma. Um, and so this was the, the perfect pool of uh, patients to work with. And um, so it's interesting when you got into that environment, um, it was, you were there as sort of the helping, the, the helping profession, right? You were not there to antagonize the inmates, which right. sometimes that dynamic existed with them. Right. Um, so, you know, once you were there and they recognized that you were there to actually try to help, um, there really was not a whole lot to be afraid of, you know, as long as, again, you kept up good boundaries um, and you earned the respect of working with these gentlemen. Uh, and part of that was the idea of when they presented themselves with this kind of tough facade uh, was to let them know that 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 wasn't going to work with you, you know, that, again, you were there to help them and they could choose to be helped or not. Um, but it certainly was in their benefit to um, learn something, learn some skills before they were released back out into society. So when we say death row, that means some will be released? I'm trying to understand the concept, you know? No, this was actually in the general population. Okay, got it. I worked with on the psych unit. Yeah, death okay. row was a completely different, different. Um, set of individuals, yeah. So, you know, sometimes I watch uh, uh, you as Columbo, the detective Columbo, I love him. And I still remember one segment he says about criminals, he says, he, some of them, he said, some of them are very nice, you know, that they're very smart, you know, that even sometimes he respects them. So what, what's your view on, on, um, on somebody who is in prison uh, for a serious crime? Well, I, you know, I think it's very interesting and I think those are all very good points. I think part of what needs to be addressed or that we certainly don't address enough is the level of mental illness that we see criminalized. Um, and when you look at it from this perspective, I mean, some of these gentlemen who I worked with on the psychiatric unit, um, they were doctors, they were lawyers, um, they were, you know, they were well-educated men, they were well-respected in society and in, the, in their communities, um, and being struck with this mental illness and not having it properly under control, right. um, you know, they ended up doing in some cases, some pretty heinous crimes. And when you took a look at, I personally have never worked with an inmate who did not have their own history of trauma. And mm -hmm. so we started to look at these gentlemen and their histories. Mm -hmm. uh, not that it, it certainly doesn't excuse their behavior, right. but it certainly helps us to understand right. um, where this came from. Right. And certainly realize that um, much more needed, need, needed to and needs to be done to help rehabilitate um, these inmates besides simply locking them up from society. Totally understand and I agree. So if you were going, if you had the power, Dr. Wolf, the infinite power, 
with the uh, practitioners of healers, how would you, what would you tell them if somebody is um, unfortunately gets a trauma in life and it could be from 10,000 different reasons and maybe some of this large trauma, maybe everybody has some form of a trauma in their life. Sure. But as far as approaching that person before even thinking of putting them in prison, how would you approach it? Well, I think that, you know, that is the, that's a very big question. Um, mm -hmm. I think a lot has to do with, first of all, what the crime was. Again, mental illness uh, doesn't excuse behavior. And so um, everybody is responsible, especially as an adult, we're responsible to take care of ourselves. We're responsible to seek treatment if we need it, um, take our medication if we need it. And so first and foremost, when we commit a crime, um, there needs to be restitution for that. Uh, and, and of course, crimes go all across the spectrum. You know, I worked with gentlemen who had drug charges, you know, versus gentlemen who had committed murder. Uh, but what I do think is that if, uh, because we know the rehabilitation inside prisons uh, is so lacking um, that once the inmates do serve their time, um, the idea of being re-released out into society, I think we definitely have to look at um, how we're going to rehabilitate them then. Right. Uh, if not, if we're not able to do it within the prison. And when you're in a prison, that's a very different environment. And so um, clinical care comes very secondary to how a prison operates. And so the rules and structures and routines of the prison always take precedence over an inmate receiving care. And I can't help but think when an inmate leaves prison, when he was in prison, he created some form of friendship or friendships. And then when he goes out, it's just like men in war and they, and they come home. Okay. And then they go out and um, they might feel even more, not e but alienated from, from people. Yeah, for sure. I think that, um, you know, again, prison is its own environment. It's its own world. It's its own support system. And it's structured for them. And so uh, many of them do end up feeling safe in that environment. Uh, and many of them do well in that environment in terms of staying out of trouble and um, being able to follow rules and regulations. And many of them are also very desperately lacking support outside of the prison environment. They've come from very dysfunctional places. And so if they are released back out into society with no sense of support around them, uh, it's, it's very difficult for them to integrate uh, back into society. And then they, of course, have this sort of scarlet letter that they have been in prison. Right. Uh, and so the way that society has a tendency to look at uh, these gentlemen uh, because of that, um, it's kind of it's a recipe for disaster for many of them, which is one of the reasons why recidivism is so high. Right. That's amazing. No, I mean, it, it's very... I don't like to use the word complicate, but it is, there's so much to it. Um, and this show could go on for many hours, everybody. Um, but one thing I thought, how do they maintain good health? Well, I think that, um, and are you talking about physical health? Yes. 
Well, I mean, here, here's one of the things about being in, in a prison. The reality of it is that for, for gentlemen who came from dysfunctional environments, some of them came from uh, very low socioeconomic environments, you know, you're in a prison where you are, uh, you have a place to sleep. You have three meals a day that you're fed. You do have access to uh, medical doctors and psychiatric doctors. Uh, many of them had better care in the prison than oh. they had outside of it. Oh. Uh, you know, when they are allowed, they have what's called rec time. So many of them right. spend their rec time exercising. Right. And so I think that, um, again, many of them better than they ever did outside. Mm-hmm. So um, how could society, or what would you like to tell the, uh, the viewers, how can we look at a, somebody in prison in a positive, what type of positive thoughts can we think about instead of the stigmatization, you know, um, prison, ah, you know. Sure, sure. Well, I think one of the things to think about, again, are the number of inmates in prison who, A, have mental illness and trauma histories, right. um, and B, who are in prison for things like drug charges, um, where we know people who are suffering from addiction, uh, again, simply locking them up does nothing to help the addiction or the mental illness. And so I think that, again, if we're truly looking to make society safer, uh, one of the things that we have to start looking at in terms of a prison population uh, are a group of um, uh, psychologically uh, broken human beings that, um, again, once they serve their time, and, and some of them justifiably should not get out of prison, uh, you know, given the crimes that they have committed and, and the state that they may be in. But the reality is the majority of inmates are going to be reacclimated out into society. Uh, and if we don't look through a different lens and a lens of, again, true rehabilitation, which is addressing addiction issues, which is addressing trauma, which is addressing mental health, um, what we run the risk of in society is, again, simply uh, releasing people who are uh, maybe dangerous, um, who may be uh, committing you know, additional crimes and simply returning back into that environment. So I think that we have to start looking at it outside of simply the lens of the bad guys um, and being able to look at it through a lens of broken human beings um, that at some level uh, need somebody to show some compassion. Yeah, and, and understanding. Compassion and understanding. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to put it. Right. And, and I ju would just like to throw out there sure. that again, it's one of the reasons, you know, people said to me, how could you work with these individuals who have done such horrible things. Um, you know, I worked with people who murdered children and, you know, murdered women and did, you know, just unspeakable things. And I think that we would never ask the victim's families. Um, certainly their feelings are justified and understandable. Um, and my reaction to that was always because it had not happened to me. Um, I was able to keep some objectivity 
And I was able to look at it through that lens of trauma. And I was able to recognize the fact that the best I could possibly do for society, for the people who had been victimized by these gentlemen, was to try to get in there knowing they would be back on the streets one day and doing my best to get them to a place where they could reintegrate into society yes. and pose the risks to society that they had um, that got them incarcerated to begin with. Yeah, yeah you know, that's beautiful. And uh, I can't help but reflect on the movie Dead Man Walking. Mm -hmm with Susan Sarandon and um, I forgot his name, but um, how she, the nun, she was a nun, but you saw the movie and the loving energy that would pour out of her until he finally, finally, it was really touching that I love you, you know. He came from a broken, like what you're talking about, but I guess, uh, and you have a very loving presence. So, um, I think some of it has to do with the person who walks in, the psychologist. If somebody who, psychologist walks in who is very harsh and hard, because these men, they do have sensitivity. <laughs> you know, they are street wise. They know who's who. <laughs> so body language, A to Z. So when somebody walks in, the more of the loving and gentle that the person is, I think that also helps tremendously for them to, to maybe hopefully open up their hearts, dig into themselves, reflect into themselves, and just open up their, uh, just the whole thing, their mind, body, spirit, the whole, the whole nine yards. Um, what would yeah. you say to that, that loving force? Uh, I do, and we did have, you know, there were nuns that, that came to them. Oh. And then um, they worked with the inmates as well. Um, I think that it's, it's interesting because prison is not the place where people feel comfortable being vulnerable, um, both for the inmates and I think for the staff. And so I, I do think that presence means everything when you're working with any kind of patient. And so even where the guards were concerned, um, when you're able to present yourself in a way that you're able to show compassion, right? Without being manipulated, right. you have to be a strong force, but also one that's open uh, to, to hearing uh, what has happened with these guys to being vulnerable. Um, eventually, some of them were able to kind of break down those barriers a bit and they were able to um, kind of dig deep and talk about the trauma that they had gone through uh, really have to face and take responsibility for whatever crime they committed. Uh, um, I think that that is the place that they need to get to. Yeah, the responsibility. Absolutely, in order to make any kind of headway. Right, to go forward. And right. the issue, I think, in, a, in the prison, again, is that it is not safe for them to feel vulnerable necessarily. So uh, the idea of having any kind of psychiatric care was almost kind of a little bit of a break from that world of the prison where they had to be hardened and they had to be tough um, in order to, to survive. And oh, how interesting. And so to be right. able to come into therapy and sort of get a break from that, right. um, I think was, was beneficial for many of the, the It tapped into maybe some of their softness that they, uh, that they never really um, wanted to be. <laughs> oh. 
are. I mean, Especially when you Especially the presence of a soft uh, therapist. And when you, many of these uh, gentlemen, I mean, they were children. They were barely 18, 19, 20 years old, you know, when they were already behind bars. And so... Um, for them especially, and then certainly for many of them, even if they were a bit older, um, simply developmentally, you know, they weren't, uh, they weren't middle-aged adults, you know, they were more like teenagers uh, in, in terms of their coping mechanisms and in terms of their um, defense mechanisms and in terms of their social engagement. And so being able to connect with them uh, and offer them a, a safe space to talk about things and to, again, be vulnerable and to learn, uh, I think was beneficial, not for all, but certainly for some. Mm-hmm. And outside of a true uh, psychopath, which only about 1% of the population is, you know, a true psychopath has absolutely no uh, ability to empathize. Uh, and those are truly dangerous human beings, right? Because they never can truly take responsibility or truly understand what somebody else is, is going right. But outside of that, you know, you've got the great majority of the population who are capable of empathy and certainly are capable of developing a greater sense of empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we certainly know is first you need to be shown it before you can be expected to develop it. Oh, yes, that makes sense. Right, right, right. You have to be shown it. Yeah. yeah. I guess it goes a lot back to the heart. Absolutely. You know, what happened to their heart, you know? The trauma, you know, the, I can see now like a puzzle, you know, broken pieces, you know, in the heart. And it's a matter of putting some, something, I don't know if you can put all of them together, but some of the pieces together. So they become more, they become, they feel like a human being because maybe some and, and inmates don't feel like human beings when they're in there. Maybe they're not treated as human beings. Yeah, and I think that that's a very fair statement. Right. Um, many of them have not, and many of them have learned to, to act in a way because they have such a low sense of self that, um, that, that solicits that from others. You know, it solicits other people um, not being kind to them and not being engaged with them because they put on such a persona uh, that is, um, you know, one that that is a deterrent for people. You know, they 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 learn how to act like criminals, right? No, and learn that like right. nobody wants. And become very good at it and very isolating for them. Right. Uh, and so if you are able to kind of peel that away and get underneath it, uh, you can start to learn what happened, you know, what got them to the place that all of a sudden they were incarcerated. Yes, turning the negative into as much positive as possible, you know. For, for me, working with them, it always came down to trauma. You know, again, I there was never an inmate that I worked with who had not gone through their own trauma and so and and not had never successfully dealt with that and so for the first time in being incarcerated many of them were facing their own traumas uh, and that's a very difficult thing for anyone to do um I know I could talk to you for for hours but um one other question with that is do any of them ever go through hypnotherapy oh that's a very good question um I don't know okay. I am 
personally not trained in hypnotherapy, and I know that it was not used at the prison that it I was. Okay. But I don't know. Okay. Or any other healing techniques used in prison, like Reiki or uh, acupuncture or massage therapy. Any of these techniques ever used? Um, not in the not in the facility that I worked in. No. Okay. Well, that would be interesting, actually. You're very interesting. Thank you so much, Dr. Dora Wolf from the greater Chicago area clinical psychologist. We thank you so much for just the beautiful insight you're giving us and, and looking at uh, the prison uh, population in uh, much more of an understanding and certainly with compassion. We, we thank you so very, very much. This has been the matter of the heart. I've been your host, Carol Olivia, and we always thank you for watching. And I will always say, love your heart, everybody. Love your heart. Good night.